0: They're talking abolishing the police and this, this. They're talking abolishing the police and this, this. They're talking abolishing the police and listen. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. Ah. Uh,
1: <laughs> if if anything, it is Ergo.
0: It sounded like <laughs> it was like a cool drink of water to you,
1: Damon. This is exactly what this is. I I am refreshed, replenished, and hydrated from what what y'all are about to get into.
0: What we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. All month, we've been having incredible conversations as part of our abolition suite. It's been really like, as we said last week, peak ergo. Like, I feel like we really like hit our stride. And this is this is what we've been in the gym for. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we got a an intellectual workout today today. Um, but before we get to our guest, Dan, you want to give a little update on what's been going on with the defund CPD campaign and the Black Abolitionist Network?
1: Absolutely. So for those who are just plugging in, we are in the midst of the summer of 2020 uh, and coming out of this time of uprising here in Chicago. There's a big abolitionist push to defund the Chicago Police Department um, and this week we have a few things coming up that that are in accordance with that effort. I do not have active logistics as of yet, uh, (laughs) but keep looking up the hashtag and look up uh, defund CPD. We plan to continue the resistance trainings and having a virtual one. uh, So that is really exciting. Uh, We plan to move our resistance training to virtual and hopefully it's something that we can do regularly if this time does not work out for folks. But again, the logistics are not solidified as of this recording. So Just
0: check the show notes. Check the notes. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, we just started doing show notes after five years. It, se- it seemed like time. It just seemed really, like time. <laughs> what a resource. <laughs> Speaking of resource, uh, we are so excited to bring you this conversation with a true like font of information and thoughtfulness and... An understanding of this idea around abolition, where it comes from, where it might go um, on a level that I don't think there's very many other people in the world who could have that conversation. Honestly, one of the most special minds living, uh, the
1: amazing historian, author, professor, Robin D.G. Kelly is joining us for the Ergo Abolition Yee. <laughs>
0: it's, so, it's so fun to see Damon fanboy. It really doesn't happen that often, but it, it happened here and it was, uh, it was adorable.
1: Yeah, this is my guy. In addition to being brilliant and, and being accomplished, really a, a, a beautiful, gentle, special spirit and soul. Um, and although he is like almost too brilliant for, for like just the regular day, uh, he's always so gracious and humble in his thinking and, 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 and always bigs up who came before him and all of the work that makes his work possible. So really, really a great example. And the one thing that I want folks to take away from this is this notion that we have to refuse indifference. I think that is such a lesson uh that beyond all of the theory or all of the you know historical anecdotes or dates or timelines uh just this human notion of what this all about is refusing to be indifferent to the conditions we are subjected to
0: Mm, that's just really got me (laughs) that's all yeah 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 that's what you're in for (laughs) um you can find robin's books wherever uh excellent books, books are. are sold or, or <laughs> borrowed or lent, uh, we're at Ergo Radio. Um, make sure that you comment, subscribe, all the all the podcasty things. Um, check out the whole Abolition Suite. Share it with someone who's engaging these ideas for the first or second time and wants to really understand what Abolition looks like uh, on a bigger scale and on a more in-depth scale. That's what the suite is here for. Um, so without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Robin D.G. Kelly. Let's get it!
1: I'm excited. Thank you so much. It's so it's well, so thank good you. to see you. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's great to see you.
1: You're my it's wild cuz yeah, you are one of my favorite people. I like consider you like, you know, a friend kind of like an <laughs> asp- inspiring yeah, right. figure, but then like I
2: check you out. So like I see you, <laughs>
1: but you don't get to see me. So it's like
2: Yeah. You're actually well, just, I'm on the screen with you this time. <laughs> just I, I the, the 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 evidence of how much I love you is that people don't hear from me for long periods of time. <laughs> Including my daughter, so you know, look, yeah. yeah. I, so, so, so you know, it's not you know you're yeah. like up there with everybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel it. But well, she's got to start a
0: podcast then. Yeah. She wants to get a hold
1: of you. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Okay, so I'm ecstatic.
0: The, and you don't always say that.
1: I don't. I don't. This is Ooh, honest. Why are
0: you so ecstatic today, Damon?
1: One of my favorite people, uh, w- one of the most significant thinkers that we have in our time, um, and just a really beautiful, humble, gracious spirit is here to be in conversation in this phenomenal abolition suite that I'm so proud we're putting together. We have none other than historian, writer, just beautiful brother, Robin D.G. Kelly is here. Hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Thank you. I
1: I think that's a this, But you are like a big get. I know you're like very like comfortable, but like this is like, you know, this is like a <laughs> you know like a a Jay-Z uh or a 50 cent for like a rap show, even though we try yeah. to pretend to be a rap show sometimes. So so
2: where where do I send when where do I send the check? You know? <laughs> Just tell me. Money order, Venmo, you know. <laughs>
0: I only do currency <laughs> exchange. <laughs> but, we, we operate on barter systems. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but very grateful for your time. Thank you for, for, for being with us, and, and we're going to get right to it. We have a tradition here at Ergo. Uh, we always start with a two-part question. In this time, and you can define time however you want, this hour, this day, this season, this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Um, the, the world treats me very, very well, you know, I mean, which is a strange thing to say for a a black man who's middle-aged, you know, living in America. Um, but my world is a world surrounded by people like yourself, that is organizers, activists, intellectuals, movers and shakers, people who are trying to transform this world. And, you know, and I live in a family full of people like that too. You know, I have a three beautiful kids who are also in their own sort of way, trying to figure this out. And to watch them figure out this moment, this moment of rebellion, this moment of COVID-19, this moment of sort of death and possibility, to watch them do that is like a revelation for me. So I'm, I'm lucky to be one of the few people on earth, maybe not the few, but who is a perpetual student and my teachers are always people who uh are age two to forty, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like all the people younger than me are teaching me. And so it's a great it's great to be here at this moment, despite the fact that we're looking at a future that could either move us toward catastrophe or something closer to abolition, you know, and that's that's what I see, this kind of fork in the road.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a hell of a hell of a fork. Um, But before before we get to that, you know, direction, um, what's something that your kids have helped you figure out, or something that they figured out that you wouldn't have gotten to on your own in the last couple months?
2: Well, you know, one of the things um, I have one child who's not a child, but about to finish her PhD at Columbia University, and she's constantly, uh, you know, teaching me through her own writing about space you know in the way that black people in particular have tried to transform the space of enclosure you know which has been our history a space of enclosure of limitation and transform those spaces of enclosure into a new commons a new sense of community uh and that's what her research is about you mm-hmm. know and and that's how she's living um and then you know from my you know my teenage uh son, who, you know, is always a source of struggle, like every teenager, you know, (laughs) is teaching me how to move slowly, you know, that not all decisions have to be made right away, Um, that, you know, as for his generation, a generation as as a Black male, you know, a generation as dealing with state violence at every turn and living in quarantine and trying to figure out how to get a job you know, these are dangerous times and and I can't be the dad that's like, you know, you need to get your ass off the couch and you need to get off that video game. I've got to pull back. You know, I've got to give him some space to figure it out. Like I was able to get that space, you know, but it's a different time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and then finally my youngest, who is, is like a unicorn, you know, um, just magical, you know, Sekou um, and is got a way of being free and expressive. That is unlike any other kid I've ever seen. And so um, it is nothing like um, having to read through some of this stuff, having to watch on television, you know, the state violence, the the murder of Rayshard Brooks, for example, to watch that. And then the next morning you know, she wake me up and say, let's jump on the trampoline, mm-hmm. you know, and I realized that I have to jump on the trampoline. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't avoid the trampoline. Um, so why would you want to avoid the trampoline? Ex- exactly. But you know, we, we, we sometimes, and that's why I kind of think about this theme of, of, of love and death. Mm. I mean, love and death are like the two poles and they're not poles in opposition. They're actually, um, dialectically, um, Linked together, they con- they contain a kind of totality. Uh, but love and death is the world that we're all engaged in. You know, it's hyper death and hyper love, and I feel it with my kids. I feel it with my wife. I feel it in the streets. I feel it just in terms of even our conversation and the idea of of an uh, of an abolition suite. You know, uh, that abolition is about you know the acknowledgement of death, and it's rejection of death as the only solution. I mean, right. I, I didn't mean to talk about this, but Angela Davis, who I think is the most important intellectual of our times, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing that. I, I, I said that before, but now it's not lip service. It's yeah. really true because it, you know, in 1969, she gave her first series of lectures at UCLA, and she gave a lecture on... Frederick Douglass. Then they were published as like the, the, the lectures on, on liberation. And in her lecture in 1969, it wasn't called abolitionist, but she, was, she pushed a position that really is foundational for our thinking. And she critiques Jean-Paul Sartre because uh, Sartre says, even in bondage, you have freedom. Mm-hmm. And that is the freedom to, to live or die. And that the choice of death is freedom, and she's like, "No, that's not freedom." <laughs> yeah. She says, "Sartre is wrong," and she says, "the the choice is not to live or die. The choice is to accept your plight or fight. Mm-hmm. And that resistance and struggle, you know, is life. Mm-hmm. That's living, you know. And again, that was a long time ago. It's over fifty years ago. You know, she she said those words and wrote those words, and." In some ways, that pole, the dialectic tension between love and death is about the choice of life, the refusal of death, you know, which is why the idea that somehow, you know, we live in a state of social death is something I can't quite accept fully um, because, you know, it, it assumes that there's no way out. Mm-hmm. And every day we're making life, every day we're rejuvenating ourselves for the fight,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? not for resignation. Right. You see? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, and to extend that idea of, you use the phrase social death, um, and, and I've heard you talk and, re- and read your work around the idea of public life and the commons, you know, and the the very particular and very significant uh death that comes with the dismantling of that and so i'm wondering if you can just kind of extend that idea of of social death into what does that mean collectively versus the refusal to uh sacrifice that life
2: right well you know on the one hand um the idea of social death comes from orlando patterson um i know frank wilderson among others have kind of picked it up and framed it as a kind of permanent condition Mm. um and it's a very powerful argument, Afro pessimist argument. Elements of it I could identify with, but my teacher was Cedric Robinson, who always rejected the idea of of social death because, for him, it's the collective refusal of, in in this case, of enslaved people, which mm-hmm. he refers to, it, the collective refusal of enslaved people to one accept their identity and station as enslaved people, uh, two, to accept their plight as a permanent one, uh, and three, to even accept this life Hmm. as the end. And so, you know, although I'm not a religious person, Cedric would talk about the kind of Afro-Christian tradition, which you could also find in other religions. That is, the tradition of faith is not about Sort of waiting for the afterlife, you know, waiting, you know, that that somehow the troubles would just disappear. But faith is about the constant fight against being reduced to an object, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm. and we could call it a refusal to be dehumanized, but it's specifically about not being an object, not being a commodity, not being a machine. Um, And the way people do that is by making love. And what I mean by that is making community. Uh, forms of sociality that is family, neighbors, um partying, um finding ways to create space that's not defined by the master, defined by capital, defined by structures of oppression, defined by the prison. doesn't mean that those things are not there. It means that you create the space in order to be able the next day to fight for dismantling,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: mm-hmm. um, and that's why, What we actually have experienced is, I would say, social life projected into the future, Mm. you know you can have social debt. I just made that up, by the way. You
0: know? <laughs> that's, that was the yeah, goal. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, what we're... That's what yeah.
2: <laughs> so beautiful. Um, <laughs> so, I,
0: I,
1: <laughs> I got to do it now because it, it has to start now. Th- that was so,
0: just like mm-hmm. when a rapper is like like on a radio show and they're like, that was off the top. <laughs> 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 I,
1: have to, I have to do it now. So we, we have a tradition here on the show in addition to, it to our, our opening question. And it's called gassing. And I don't know if, if that is too Chicago focused, but it basically means like singing praises <laughs> or affirmations It's basically the opposite of Roaster. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, throughout this conversation, you're a very humble and gracious person. You just have to receive some of this gas that I have for you because that was just so beautiful. Um, And, you know, you mentioned Cedric, you you mentioned Angela, and I I had specific questions about them, but I also want to name uh, why I appreciate and value This time that you're offering in this conversation, I've more and more this year been, been naming Black liberation as my spiritual tradition, right? More as a religion itself. Um, and so, so texts such as Black Marxism and, and what Cedric Robinson's work, right? These are now becoming almost like, like spiritual scripture for me. Um, and, and so, you know, the way that you not only as a historian, but also as a, you know, as an emissary or a disciple, the way that you continue this legacy, there's something very spiritual about it. I feel like I know him from just like watching one or two of his talks, reading, and then hearing you speak about him. That's what I'm grateful for in this conversation is to get the pull out the, some of the historical threads and fabrics that may not be quite popular yet of how we got to this place, because mm-hmm. there has been this revival and like, you know, the, the streets are spilling over with something we've never seen before. And I think you have one, have a perspective on it, but two are also a, 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 um, a deacon of of the thought <laughs> that 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 has that has brought brought us here so i just want to one thank you for how beautiful you just said that and oh, the way you. that you you ground us um but i want to get back into what do you latch on as like the historical roots of this tradition of abolition where we are now and then how does that intersect with this project that you've been continuing around naming racial capitalism and preparing folks to to understand that there has been this trajectory of liberation. I've seen you say that it, it's birthed out of work in South Africa and, and Cedric kind of adopted and had this new intersectional approach of we should not be talking about race or class. It is a right. it is an intersected interlocked project uh, and that is where our liberation is and it is like this thing of the people the indigenous uprising of the people that that continues the thinking not like the hyper-Marxist or hyper-academic tradition that we usually look towards. Right, 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 right. Um, and then there's this abolition thing that we, I think we name as Angela, of, like, kind of rebirthing from Du Bois of, of, you know, abolition democracy coming out of Reconstruction. I've heard you say the second Reconstruction of the 60s and 70s, and then we get Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Critical Resistance, and then we, you know, name Miriam Cabo, who's in this series just true so that's my understanding i said that because i watch you always add more nuance or obscure things or make things bigger um so where is it bigger or smaller than how i just framed it on top of saying (laughs) thank you so much for being so brilliant and helping us understand these things
2: well you're you're the brilliant one you just framed it for me so thank you very much appreciate it. i also just listen to your talks a lot (laughs) so i just want to flatter you as as a good yeah i appreciate that well, it's well, thank you for that question. I mean, it's it's there's a lot, there's a lot of dimensions, a lot of elements to it. So if we begin with um even with the question of racial capitalism, you know, um, and just a quick genealogy. Yes, the first time I know of its use was in South Africa as a way to explain a very specific um social formation or social reality. And that is that, you know, capitalism that, that South Africa was a capitalist um, you know, uh, white nation that was built on the dispossession of African peoples and the exploitation of African labor. Um, and so in some ways, the race was inseparable from capitalist capitalism structure. Cedric went and sort of went further and argued that all of capitalism is racial because the very foundation of capitalism, Um, wasn't a break from the feudal order, but built on it. And that's the other part of the analysis, which sometimes gets lost. Um, You know, we think of, even Marx thought of capitalism as this revolution, like the overthrow of feudalism. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, it didn't quite work that way. Um, And because it emerged out of feudalism, because it emerged out of forms of of social order that preexisted capitalism, he was saying that that, those that order was already racial. But racial didn't always mean specifically anti-black. I mean, that's not to say that anti-blackness wasn't there, but racial in Europe meant anti-Irish. I mean, the first black regiment in Britain were the Irish. You know, mm. you look at Irish now, you're like, really? You know, but <laughs> that's where race is not always about skin color. It's about mm. um, making meaning of people. You basically colonize Irish, right. you 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 turn them into animals and to dogs you treat them as such, and then pretty soon, you basically throw them out of this category of white or European. It's about Um, differentiation and dominance. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, whether it's anti-Semitism, it's anti-Irish, you know, so part of what Cedric was trying to figure out was, how is it that capitalism emerges and reproduces a racial order? And the suggestion is that you can't just simply take the racial out. Once you eliminate that, you just have kind of pure capitalism and everything's going to be good. It's like, they're so inseparable that you've got to sort of destroy them together. So racial capitalism is again, inseparable from racist social order in which it flourishes. And it shows that capitalism is always operating through these kind of racial projects. Now, if you take the history of racial capitalism and connect it to this other question of, of, reconstruction or, or abolition, you know, abolitionists in the 19th century, the, a lot of the white ones were not necessarily anti-capitalists. In mm-hmm. fact, you know, um, uh, Eric Williams wrote this book called capitalism and slavery. And he has a chapter which shows that, you know, some of the biggest industrialists were for abolition because they wanted free labor, because they knew that they could make more money off of free labor. You know? <laughs> um, and by free labor, we, we mean labor that's not bonded to as, as a commodity to a plantation,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: labor that's mobile, labor that you no longer have to pay for the upkeep. You basically pay them a wage, and you keep those wages low so that they have to keep coming back to work. Um, but Du Bois writes this book called Black Reconstruction, which is a revisiting of the period of Reconstruction after the Civil War, where he shows that some black radicals and some white ones imagined a future in which all forms of ex- exploitation and oppression would be eliminated. Not all forms, but most forms. Um, <laughs> they kept a couple and, in, the, in the backpack, right? Right. Some, <laughs> Just and, in case someone
0: course, starts getting in some shit with you. you gotta ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: The, 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 and we we know what the forms were that they really didn't think about. Which, yeah. and, and and to be fair, that's not exactly. Fair, but I mean, for the most part, issues of women's rights and gender, uh, sexuality; those things were not central. Yeah. And in fact, that's not to say that the the folks that um, Du Bois called proponents of abolition democracy were all anti capitalist. But you see that thread, mm-hmm. um, and you see it uh, in the eighteen sixties and seventies. Uh, and and one of the reasons you see it is because the most vibrant force in the struggle for reconstruction were black workers, mm. black workers. That is to say um, people who were uh, part of the national color farmers Alliance, which was, you know, basically sharecroppers and tenant farmers, mine workers, uh, workers on, on the docks and ste- the stevedores. These were the people who really built a movement to really emancipate uh, labor and emancipate all oppressed peoples within the United States and elsewhere. Uh, But of course, they bumped up against what Du Bois calls the the wages of whiteness. And that is that white workers who had a choice. Mm.
3: Uh,
2: They had a choice to side with these Black and brown and Asian workers, many of whom are pushing for a genuine abolitionist future, or they could side with the, the landlords and the capitalists and the people because of their whiteness. And, they, they, and not all of them did, but some of them chose the latter. Enough did. Yeah, enough did. <laughs> enough did. And and those who do, didn't choose the latter, those who chose abolition, many of them are in the grave. Right. You know, they got killed, you know, or destroyed or eliminated or had to change their mind. And hmm. we see that. We see that in the first Reconstruction. We see that in the second Reconstruction uh, in the in 1960s, when, again, the possibility of moving beyond simply tweaking the Constitution and, and trying to make sure that Black people had rights to something much more radical. Um, and I'll give you like a, a, a specific example. Um, in Detroit, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers yeah. came out of the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement with these wildcat strikes in 1968, where Black workers had the most revolutionary um, vision of workers' control, of anti-racism, of ending police violence, um, of, you know, fair wages, of slowing down production. And they brought some white workers and certainly the Arab American workers and others into the fold, but they were also crushed. They were crushed by, again, the failure of white workers to support the League and to support the Black Workers Congress, but they also were crushed, and this is, here's the, the key thing, by a, a new rainbow coalition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by a new rainbow coalition, that is the second reconstruction produced certain kinds of Pyrrhic victories.
3: Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm.
2: victories are getting Black and brown people into elected office uh, who end up, some of them pushing back against the system, but many of them coming into the system and signing the epitaph of the abolitionist movement um, that erupted in, in the 1970s. And, and, and so you have, on the one hand, in the 1970s, uh, a backlash, just like the backlash of the 1860s of the Klan and, and the, Nazi, the, the American Nazi Party and racists on the one hand. But at the top, you have black, brown, white elites who are pushing towards a kind of neoliberal future of privatization, of divestment from cities, of crushing radical movements. And so together, they work together, not on purpose. <laughs> they they end up crushing what was that movement, but nothing dies. And that movement continues to exist, continue to erupt. And by the 1990s, you have a new abolitionist possibility of coming in opposition, not to a right wing regime, but to a different kind of right wing regime, as Clintonism, Clint, yeah. Yeah.
3: you know,
2: uh, and that's in some ways the foundation for where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think people learned a lot of lessons in all this, and and racial capitalism is is a, a theme that runs throughout because racial capitalism is not just white capitalism. It may be built on the ground of white supremacy, but racial capitalism is also about when black power gets co opted to mean green. To mean, you know, black capitalism right. uh, or brown power does the same, uh, which is about structure of exploitation um, that is just simply open to, to color. Uh, that is also the perpetuation and uh, consolidation of racial capitalism.
0: Whew. I just need one second to take. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things that I love about what you just mapped out is, uh, this idea of that nothing ever dies, right? So there are kind of these, uh, waves and crests, uh, and then troughs in it of, of when the, who, I think it was Bill Ayers when he's on the show, he talked about the down times or the, mm. the, the still times. Um, let, let's get to this moment right now, which is very okay. much not one of those. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, what roots or lineage are you seeing right this moment being connected to, um, that, you're not seeing other people make that connection,
2: basically. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's the other people that I always worry about. Because <laughs> um there are at least one million, two million, three million people who are way smarter than me. <laughs> I mean, just in the United States. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the world, then we're talking about like billions. Mm-hmm. Um but we couldn't book them, so we <laughs> <laughs> They've never wrote a good forward. Right, right. Yeah. That's <laughs> You no, know, I'm a professional writing forward. Yeah, you, are. You, know, I wrote you are. That is more forwards. I wrote more forward. forwards than the, I got the... I'm in the Guinness Book of World Records for most forwards in a five-year period. I think that's you like, actually, um, you
0: wrote the forward for the Guinness Book, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, they're about to ask me, I'm sure. Um, you're like uh, Lil Wayne in, in
2: Features in like 2009, 2010. <laughs> <laughs> like, no one can top you in the forwards. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, it's, it, this is a really good question because I'm sure that other people have thought about this. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about the genealogy of how we got here. And I think there are two critical uh, moments that are connected. Um, In terms of the shorter moment, and then this is under Obama, uh, the the emergence of a Black Lives Matter insurgency. And I don't want to call it just a movement, because there's all these different movements that converge at the same time. And Black Lives Matter being one, uh, the movement for Black Lives as a kind of coalition, represents a lot of these movements, many of which had been around for a very long time. Uh, Organization for Black Struggle, for example, in St. Louis uh, was foundational in this Ferguson uprising Absolutely. and they've been around for a long time. Um, veterans, in fact veteran activists like Jamala Rogers, for example, who goes back, you know, even before the Black radical Congress, which I'll mention in a second. So you have that. but then you know the, that 2012 generation, which includes yourself, I mean, the Let Us Breathe Collective, for example, is critical organizing work that, that really challenged the police state in Chicago. Um, Recharge Genocide, Black Youth uh, Project 100. Um, you know, you could go on and on. I could make a long, long list of organizations that erupted, which is to say that organizing really does matter. You know, we, we sometimes look at these things on television who were who not active, who are not connected. And what we see are spontaneous rebellions. But there's no possible way that you know all these white people walk around with placards that would say defund the police without a, a knowledge base, you know, let alone all the black the black people walk around with <laughs> defund the police. You know, there's a knowledge base in a, an organizing work that was that was up against an administration, and this is the Obama administration, that not only would not acknowledge that, but did very little to respond to the wave of killings of Black people. And the other thing which is important, I think, is that out of that, you got the Movement for Black Lives policy statement in 2016, which in some ways is the framework, I think, for this kind of new abolitionist vision, that is a kind of divest, invest vision where you divest you know, from the war on Black people, basically, and and which is a a, a global war, mm-hmm. a war on brown people, a war on on the Middle East, a war on... You, know, you, end, you end war and take the dividends from that war and invest in things that matter, like schools, housing, infrastructure, health, mental health. I mean, this is just basic. You know, this is <laughs> yeah. basic. Someone yeah. can come from another planet and say, why are you not doing this, you know? Yeah. Um and, you know, restorative justice, living wage, uh, green energy. You know, we're, we're facing with all these different catastrophes, one of them being the, the, the impending destruction of the planet. And we're trying to push back against that. And, and these organizers, like yourself, your generation is the best generation ever. The best generation ever, because it's a generation that has actually made connections between all these struggles uh, and without apology, and, and without having to sort of make a constitutional argument, which I'm mm. so tired of, mm-hmm. the idea that somehow America is this great place and it's got to live up to its promise. This is a generation that says it's not a great place. Yeah, it's not a promise. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's time to tear all that stuff up and begin with a set of principles, right? A set of ethics. And I have to say... You know, despite Dr. King's own public rhetoric, King was closest to this than a lot of people. Mm. Um, he was as close, almost, as the National Welfare Rights Organization, which I think was even closer to this. Really thinking about like what what makes sense in terms of a good life for people. But let me just jump back. Um, I I tend to think of this generation really also being a product of the 1990s because just as this generation is fighting a liberal regime. And again, everyone's fighting Trump, but that's too easy. It's, it's a struggle against the Obama machine that I think is really an important lesson because it was, again, a refusal to go for the okie-doke, as Baraka used to say. You, know, mm-hmm. you don't accept um, the, the promise that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. And you know, when, even when King said that, he knew that, that that arc had to be bent and bent through civil disobedience, bent through militancy, been through breaking the law, you know, because the moral arc of the universe is not something that has its own power to do whatever it right. wants to he, do. He wasn't just saying it's going to be okay, yeah. right? He was not. And then if you go back to the '90s, I mean, I think about all the organizations that emerge out of that critical resistance. The Black Radical Congress met in Chicago. You know, the founding organization that Barbara Ransby, as one of and Manning Marable and, and others, Bill Fletcher kind of brought together. Uh, you've got all these different uh, movements that were intended to focus on building uh, Black leadership, Brown leadership—you know—a lot of the struggles against immigration policies of deportation, a lot of that stuff happened. The, the struggles against uh, Clinton's crime bill, um, the struggles, especially the, the welfare rights struggles. I mean, it was under Clinton, you know, that what we think of as the social safety net of welfare. Was completely dismantled, basically, and turned into workfare. Um, some of the labor unions that emerged in the nineteen nineties were also pushing for a much more progressive agenda. And I think to go back to that moment uh, laid the foundations for the moment we're in. Uh, and it just so happens. And look, I'm not taking credit for any of this, but I can I have to say that as a university professor who's lived a pretty long life, who's been doing this for over thirty years. I mean, many of my students are actually right in these movements, Mm. are in these movements, and I won't start naming them because I will be here all day. Um, And it's not because of anything I taught. It might be a little because of something you (laughs) taught. Well, I I wish, but it's what I I saw. It's what I witnessed. What I witnessed was a generation that this is what they were up against. They were up against uh, first the erosion of ethnic studies, and they fought those battles to win it. in the the streets, you know, and on campus. They were fighting um, issues around sexual violence on campus, you know. They were fighting um, issues around police violence, which, again, it doesn't erupt with Trayvon Martin. Look, this is a generation that some of those students were in class during the Rodney Rodney King, King, you know, um, uprising, the murder of Latasha Harlins. Um, We can go on throughout the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, remember Cincinnati when it blew up in 2001. I mean, I I had students who were from Cincinnati. I went to Cincinnati because of those students. And there were people who created the Center for Community Engagement in Cincinnati, which was a space really for community building and for movement building. So I, I witnessed this. I saw it with my own eyes and imagined what it means to have all these kids show up. In my class, carrying copies of "Our Prisons Obsolete,"
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, or "Abolition Democracy." These are both Angela Davis's texts. Reading Cedric Robinson. I mean, people start doing racial capitalism when we put out that new edition of, of Black Marxism. you Got all. I mean, I would assign it, but sometimes I wouldn't assign it. They'd show up in my office. And say, I'm reading this book. Can you help me understand it? You know, and it's that work that drove them to make a choice. They're like no, I'm not going to corporate law. I'm actually going to join this nonprofit organization. Mm. And they populate these organizations or they join, you know, left-wing organizations and and they're doing this work. Those seeds were planted because of, and I'll be very specific here, the neoliberalization of both the university and their lives. The Mm. fact that they witnessed the privatization of public um, institutions. Uh, They lost... The, the, the decline in wages and jobs and opportunities. They saw what happened post-Katrina where, where millions of people, or hundreds of thousands, I should say, of Black people displaced, you know, and couldn't come back. And that displacement produced um, opportunities for real estate and developers to come in for the privatization of the schools. school district, yeah. I mean, you know, so much. They witnessed that. They saw it. They studied it. And then they're also at universities where Chicago is a good example, but mm-hmm. like Columbia University, where Columbia is like buying up properties, you know, displacing mostly Dominican communities, uh, you know, in certain parts of West Harlem in order to build more buildings for the university. And it was the students, the students who stood up to that, not the faculty. I mean, there there's like three of us, <laughs> <laughs> but not the faculty. I mean, we see the same thing. Um, at USC, when I taught at USC, where students were in the streets, fighting the expansion of USC in the Figueroa Corridor, which is, again, displacing mostly Latinx and Black communities in that area. These students were so militant, so brave, so heroic. And they taught me so much. And that's why, you know, to be a university professor meant I had to be always on my P's and Q's. I always to follow the students mm. and then bring that stuff back into the classroom, Yeah. right? That's why I, I'm, I'm like, to go back to your first question, I'm the luckiest person on the planet because I could sit back and reap the benefits of struggle in a way and learn to be smarter because all these students have taught me and that's why they're in the streets now.
3: Mm. Mm.
0: One of the things that I really appreciate about your work and even just how you're talking today, but I've seen it in other talks and in your writing, is the, the comfort in the dialectic of being within the academy Within that role, within those classrooms, but also within these institutions. And I was watching a talk that you did with Fred Moten a couple of years ago. I can't remember if it was you or him who was saying this thing about uh, Black studies being one existing before the it was within the academy it kind of entering into that
2: space and then maybe it's time to take it back <laughs> um, right that, that was me that was you
0: for the, for the record
2: <laughs> although Fred Fred says the smartest things but that's one thing that I'll was take you
0: back. <laughs> uh, but then also this idea that uh, that the field is a critique of Western civilization which we talked about a, a little bit up front which is obviously an expansive framing but I think a, an accurate one So I'm curious for you, Within that, quote, like, field, what are mm-hmm. any methods, approaches that come from that, like, obviously, Black people have been critiquing Western civilization long before they were in the academy, mm-hmm. uh, and there were methodologies and practices that emerge there. Are there any methodologies right. that you hold as being part of that lineage that you think either should be held sacred from the academy or introduced into more spaces within that field? And I just want to truffle that question okay. with...
1: I feel like that also is very parallel to what you're praising on the street, right that mm-hmm. this is not just a movement against a bad thing um the police as a symbol, but also as a as kind of a structural front line of not just the nation state but like the western conception of civilization is what i feel or what i attempt to do without like overbearing people uh once you
0: go more than 500 years people
1: (laughs) so yeah that's not an addition to the question just a little bit of truffle of like i think that description also
2: fits with the ambitions of what's happening on the ground yeah right no 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 question no question and and you know it's just to tie to the last thing you said damon is that um which is not the. The direct answer but it's part of it uh, so much of what is sometimes missing in the discourse at least the commercialized version of discourse is what the the new abolitionists want as opposed to what they're what they're what they don't want and so we we get to this, this problem of defund the police or police abolition as an end and like ruthie gilmore keeps saying you know abolition in this respect is never about the absence of something it's about the presence the presence of justice and that's why when you walk around with placards that say defund the police th- there's no conjunction you have to have and <laughs> you know what <laughs> to with? that's a lot of cardboard and, though <laughs> right That's a lot of cardboard and so it's a replacement and that to me that is essential to black studies um not so much as as method as much as a the project of Black Studies. Um, And let me just say a little bit about that, because the idea that Black Studies is a critique of Western civilization, that comes from Cedric. Cedric was actually revising C.L.R. James. C.L.R. James had said, Black Studies is the study of Western civilization. Mm. Uh, and, And Cedric, who doesn't really care who he critiques (laughs) i mean he doesn't you know he he took down the boys you know um but he's like no it's a critique of western civilization which is very important um and so therefore if it's a critique of it a couple things we have to consider one is that when we think about the origins of black studies uh it's important to be much more transnational in terms of the origins. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think a lot of us, myself included, failed um, to do. So if we think of the Jamaican roots of Black Studies, you know, the Black Studies movement, then we've got to talk about Walter Rodney uh, in the the slums of Kingston giving speeches and talks and having conversations with the Rastafari and working people in Jamaica. Uh, you know, as one of the origins of, of black studies, we got to think about. Just to ergo, sorry, just an ergo
1: yeah. reading list shout out. Everyone should go check out uh, how Europe underdeveloped
2: Africa. Yes. Right?
1: That, that's the correct title. Mm-hmm. Yes, how yeah. Europe
2: underdeveloped Africa, and then you should
1: go from there and read Manning Mar- Mar- Marable's "How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America."
2: And absolutely, like, you'll Those feel really smart t- if you do that.
0: T- <laughs> and I would even add one and more. really mad.
2: <laughs> right, right. But all of this will make much more sense. Exactly. <laughs> out of, out of fact, black I add, Marxism. <laughs> I would add one more thing, which is um, Rodney has a book called Groundings with My Brothers, which mm. is about that experience of, of you know, his, his lectures and, and speeches that he gave. Mm. But that's like one origin. Another origin would be Dar es Salaam in the 1960s, where a lot of intellectuals were in exile, or Accra, Ghana. Uh, a lot of intellectuals are thinking about, like, how do we understand the history and uh, in, in, in condition of Black people in order to move toward liberation? So it's liberation studies. That's what Black Studies right. is supposed to be. Um, and, it's, and Black Studies has to be committed to decolonization, because you're talking about co- colonized people. It has to be committed to revolution, because you're talking about people who are oppressed. It's got to be committed to the abolition of all forms of oppression and violence, because our bodies have been the, the object of oppression and violence. Um, it's got to be you know, thinking about you know, the stewardship and caretaking of the land. In other words, it's mm-hmm. got to be connected to indigenous thought, mm-hmm. because not only because indigenous people are part of the kind of epistemology how, of a kind of how to move beyond um, the existing Mode of thought, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of deeper study, um, but also because we are indigenous peoples, you know, who are taken yeah. out. Black studies has to be committed to not just recognizing those uh, forms of oppression, but disbanding them. In other words, um, all the formations of Black Studies in the United States, including um, the Community University in Chicago, for example, um, where graduate students and, and undergraduate students came to the community to teach classes. Um, or in, in, in Berkeley and Oakland, is basically the same thing um, with the community, that they were committed to you know, disbanding the army, disbanding the police, opening the borders, recognizing that as a critique of Western civilization, all the impositions that we're dealing with, even the imposition of sexual normativities, yeah. like the normativities of gender and sexuality, these things are impositions that have to be lifted. In order for us to free ourselves, and also it means a self critique, because we're also coming from societies and traditions in which, you know, not perfect. It doesn't mean like a return to some kind of atavistic past, but to move forward to something much more radical. So, in in a sense, there's not a topic or subject or issue that's outside the scope of Black studies, Hmm. you know, because we live in this world, so we have to engage you know, all those things. Just in concluding this idea, if indeed Black Studies is a kind of critique of Western civilization and its racial regimes and all of its phoniness and fabrications, then we have to, you know, recognize that Black Studies is never fixed. It goes back to the question of social death. Making Black Studies is about making Black life, Mm. you know, and making mm-hmm. Black life visible, mm-hmm. but not just visible, but creating the conditions of transformation,
3: mm-hmm. and it
2: can never be fixed and it can never be stable. And so, therefore, our work is a response to our times. Always, it's a product of our times and limited by it, um, and it should anticipate our times.
1: Mm. Mm, that's yeah, that's beautiful. I, I feel like I can get everything I have in two questions. <laughs> but just coming out of that but just coming out of that you know a language that I've, I've used um is the idea of uh as opposed to you know freedom is abstract rights and arts are, are abstract or vague um and even like a movement for life or life mattering are also like kind of clunky for me on a language level mm-hmm. uh i i personally refer to it as a black life movement like that's what this has been, and then there is a larger life movement that can exist outside of right. black liberatory uh work. So yeah, that just that just feeds exactly like the the trajectory that I'm feeling. Yeah. So I got yeah. two things. I like that. I love yeah. that. Thank that's, you. That's yeah. absolutely right. I'm writing something and I need your help. So <laughs> I'm gonna call you. <laughs> I'm looking, uh, for I'm looking for a <laughs> yeah, forward. Looking for a forward in here. I'm gonna need, need a verse
0: <laughs> and, a, uh, and a and a backward. <laughs> the
1: whole thing <laughs> um but but uh to oh to, the to, serious note so one thing that i see and am feeling this is something i need analysis from from like on the ground experience but in trying to to learn the history i see it over and over again but i never see it named uh there's these two you know, I, I believe this abolitionist struggle is, is multi-generational and multi-century. Um, and there are these two things that, like, we very obviously know as obstacles or things that diminish and destroy. And then there's this, like, third arm that I, f- I feel very powerless to, and I feel like we kept replicating. So, on an obvious level, there's just, like, overt repression state violence COINTELPRO level activity that makes it very obvious that this is enemy territory and they will literally kill us right and so we always mm-hmm. have to m- maneuver that on a historical level secondly there is this like um liberal neoliberal internal like appropriation right so we get the Obamas we get the black mayors we get the Jesse Jackson is isms um that that take away so much ism. of our, our <laughs> that take away so much of our steam or actively and maybe sometimes unconsciously reverse or oppose the work of like the the liberatory radical stuff that's coming from the ground right. but then there's this third thing of internal conflict that i see you know when we talk about drum when we talk about every organization in every decade there's like and then everybody stopped liking each other um right. and i i feel like that's birthed out of obviously deep compounded generational trauma and that trauma existing within a very individualistic culture. Um, And it feels like a thing that comes up and it also feels like our greatest political opportunities are the most triggering. So at the time where there is so much that can be done, there is also so much internal just like bashing our heads on the wall. Uh, And so I'm not a good enough organizer. I want to like do some type of program to like codify this and move forward, like, learning this lesson. It feels really embarrassing to, like, read something from 1920 and see that they are, like, basically doing the same subtweeting <laughs> that's
0: happening right, right, right. now. It, um, was just, it was just in
1: pamphlets. <laughs> so, yeah. So, exactly. So, so, Barbara gets really annoyed with me when I ask this question. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, so, as my, my second f- favorite historian, <laughs> I need some historical perspective to this. I don't know if it's because it's mostly right. young people and it's just immaturity. What do you see... Of the, the pattern of internal conflict disrupting social movement and organizing? And is there any few takeaways we can take from that to start to prepare right.
2: ourselves to build better structures, to not keep repeating those things? Okay. That's a really excellent question. Actually, it's an essential question. It's a question we have to ask ourselves every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, I do. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's it's really important. And and Now, of course, one easy response is to blame social media. And I don't want to say social media doesn't play a role. It certainly does because, you know, I come out of a political tradition in which before social media, we had these debates and fights, but they were internal. Um, And they were internal that... That really, in many cases, allowed us to hold each other together. Still, despite the fights, um, when you make public those fights, uh, now you just, now you start get it gang warfare. You start to build gangs, and you start to build like constituencies that take down other people. Um, and I think that's just bad form. But it doesn't take away from the fact that these internal conflicts are real. And let me just go back. I mean, there's there's a black. And w- women of color feminists organizing tradition, I think, of meeting people where they are without judgment. And it recognizes that, like, you know, any struggle to make any kind of change is always unfinished business. And so, you know, we have these collectivities, we work together, you know, we don't really know what we're doing all the time. Sometimes we have a sense, we have a, a, a shared set of principles. But it's in those debates and those fights that sometimes internal struggles could be more than personalities. It could really be productive Mm. in terms of, you know, moving us uh, to another place. But that means it it means that we have to be uncomfortable in organizing space. Um, And that's how it's always been. I mean, you know, again, you asked for historical examples. That discomfort in the organizing space has always been there, even, even in like during the Amistad rebellion. <laughs> I mean, you, you got 18, it's like 1841, right? You uh, know, 1839. So 1839. So you got you got all these, you got all these men and, and a few women and one girl, two girls, on the ship. And they have to decide whether or not to rebel. And they have this debate. And the and the way the culture is among the Mende was we do not wage war unless there's unanimity. Mm. So they're having this fight in the hold of the ship until they convince everyone. And finally, the vote comes and they get unanimity. That's why if one person said no, then they couldn't go forward. Mm. Now we think that's all modern, you know, like participatory democracy stuff. Yeah. But that's that was that's why that wow. war. That's why they wage war. Mm. And so what I'm saying is that it required everyone to be uncomfortable and to even be offended, but to be quiet and listen to everyone so that everyone could be heard and that both the critique can can take place and people could be held together. Um, But that means approaching people that even we disagree with, even people who attack us with love and solidarity. And by love, I mean Dr. King's notion of agape, where he talks about love as uh, the unconditional love that makes no distinction between friend and enemy. So even if someone blows up your spot or, you know, attacks you publicly, you can still hold them together. Unless of course they work for the police, which is real too. So you've got people who are dis- disruptors. I mean, you've got, you've got you know, violence disruptors, right? Yeah. Provocateurs who I, we know they exist. We could name those, you know, mm-hmm. we could talk about people, in the, the, the destruction of so many movements in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. And even even common ground in New Orleans after Katrina, it got FBI agents all through that organization, right? right. So we, we know that some of those fights are actually meant to destroy us. So right. how do we, if we, continue to approach with love, solidarity, and and thought, you know, and know that we have to be able to restore community no matter what. Mm -hmm. That the practices of solidarity are the practices of of restorative justice, the same thing. So that the work of organizing is this incredible labor, you know, (laughs) um, this, this hard work where sharp disagreements don't destroy us, where personalities have to be checked you know, and even if you can't check the ones that are not our own, we have got to struggle to figure out how to do that collectively and not beat people up. Because, you know, when you're organizing, you know this, you're all organizers. I mean, you knew this from the Let Us Breathe Collective, that the people coming into that space are not necessarily people who have like, you know, read, you know, abolition democracy or read, you know, our yeah. prisons obsolete. The people who are, like, some of them may, may be armed. Some of them may be, you know, like, smoking some weed and a little bit too much weed and out of control. There may be all kinds of things happening and we've got to figure out a way to hold them together. Uh, even if it means discomfort, uh, and then also recognizing that just as black people, we are hardly perfect (laughs) 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 that, that we express Islamophobia, xenophobia, uh, and I know a lot of black people who are experts at anti-black racism, trust me. Mm, <laughs> you know, there's like anti-blackness from black people. I mean, so so the, the 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 lesson here to me is that love and solidarity, like love and death, are dialectically connected. The opposite of love though is not hate, but indifference. Mm. So mm. when we, if we're gonna hold each other together. In, in in the midst of these internal contradictions, we've got to do it so with two goals in mind. One is to try to turn that thesis and counter and, and counterthesis, those debates, into a new synthesis to kind of come to some kind of consensus that is itself full of contradictions to move beyond that. Mm-hmm. But then the other project is to refuse indifference. Mm. Mm. Even in our anger, even in our passion. Even in our sharp disagreements, we've got to refuse indifference and recognize that that when we start to to try to attack people, that we're actually crushing their ability to speak and to say. And even if we disagree with them, they've all got to be heard. Otherwise, we can't move forward. You know, so it's a lot to kind of handle, uh, especially in an age when when the surveillance state is constantly trying to undermine the work we do.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm.
2: but the work is worth it. It's mm. worth it,
3: you mm. know? Mm.
2: And, and I know that people always come up with, you know, the Zeroneo the, the Hurston line about, you know, not all um, skin folk are kin folk. And, and that's true. And that's a simple lesson to me in, in politics. And that's the last thing I should just mention on this is, you know, we need some core to hold us together. And Barbara knows this. Barbara is, is the expert at thinking about what the core is. That is, what are the values and principles that we need? That's why every organization when it's formed starts out with a set of principles. The Black Radical Congress had these principles. If you agree to these, you're, you're with us. If you don't agree to those things, you're not with us. Period. And that's it. But if without values and principles, we can never seize the future. We can never envision um, the kind of you know, beloved community that makes no distinction between friend and enemy
1: mm-hmm.
3: because
2: that's, to me, what we're, we're moving toward. Mm. So, yeah, I,
1: I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I one, want to offer you some more gas and challenge you Oh, you to, thought the
0: tank was empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and, and challenge you to to come a little bit outside of your historian hat because I see you do that very well um, and you also always operate with this grace and humility. uh, And I want you to like, kind of just like jump out of that a little bit um, (laughs) as as we just vision together. Uh, So two clunky hip hop references to get me going. Uh, So one, you know, I appreciate how you continue Cedric's work and thinking in a way uh, it, it, to me, it feels a lot like you are the fat Joe to his big pun. And just like you got the team on your back and like just rocking the chain and like the squad is going to live for another you know, another generation. Uh, but then I also want to talk just about, like, your... Kind of like Crown Jewel or your Illmatic is my second, uh, clunky hip hop reference, uh, which is Freedom Dreams, which is, you know, this, this beautiful text, um, that basically, you know, is another one of these like scriptures, I would say, uh, that pulls together these traditions. Um, and what I take from it is that throughout there has always been, um, this view beyond the possible, uh, mm-hmm. that, that then motivates some really, really inspiring work, even when, it's not even like rational, so, so to speak. Um. Yeah, I think you and Barbara have continued that tradition or, with love, invited young people, students, into continuing and upholding and, and embodying and feeling a part of this. Um, so just for me, right, like the first time I met you, we were in L.A. doing a thing, an ergo thing. Right. Uh, Barbara's the OG, so I text her anywhere in the world and she connects me to people. And you invited me into your office. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and one of the things I gather from you is the language of the marvelous and that This idea of, I knew it, known about surrealism, but this Black radical surrealism that we were continuing. um, And you introduced me to a text that you edited, and I saw these people 70 and 80 years ago saying the exact things that we're saying now and I had no knowledge of it. So it was almost like a, I read it right in the courtyard for like an hour. Uh, It was the day after a a good friend of mine, uh, John Walt, for those who know, it was the day after he was killed. And so you, just the way that that you, you know just offered love and this continuation was just so grounding for me. And so I want to pull out from you your vision right now of what The Marvelous can be or what you are seeing beyond reality, what your freedom dream is. Because right now it is July of 2020. We are experiencing the largest uprising in our nation's history and something that like has never really happened on a global scale. Um, And you've seen so much and you've studied so much. And usually historians are not allowed to like name their vision of the future. And so I want you to break your practice, leave your tradition alone, and like just come out and be robbing for a second. Um, (laughs) And from the place of there's so much to marvel at and there's so much marvelous that we can get to, as people are talking about defunding and abolishing police and prisons and carceral militarism and leading towards this new care-based, life-based society, uh, what excites you? What is your dream? What is your vision of freedom right now?
2: Well, you know, that's a really good question. It's a really hard question. Uh, By the way, that was one of the most unforgettable meetings I had when we hung out in my office. It really changed my space. Um, Oh, wow. And I so appreciate that. Thank you. And so, you know, in terms of my vision, you know, a world without police um, is also a world without capitalism. I can imagine, you know, not having to deal with the surveillance state everywhere. I can imagine a world without violence, you know, and I mean all forms of violence. There's no military anywhere. There are no borders because borders are a form of violence. Um, there are no unemployed people, um, and jobless people, and um, and homeless people. Everyone has a place to live, a really nice place to live, actually. <laughs> uh, and there's no hungry people, uh, and there's no, you know. And forgive me for saying this, but no one's out there eating takis. You know? <gasps> but
0: the, 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 the Taki contention is coming. I I know, I know. You got to be canceled over takis. They, they,
2: they, just gave, they could make some organic version yes, of them. But yes. you're like your so friend, like,
0: your friend and enemy <laughs> distinction get a little iffy there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you got decent food. You got you've got um, and not, and I don't mean like new fancy supermarkets. I mean like. Gardens and farms everywhere, you know, Um, universities without walls, you know. (laughs) Of course, the good news is that um, I don't have a credit card or money because I don't need that stuff. Everything that we need is just available by virtue of the fact that we're here. Um, A a future for the planet. Uh, Clean earth, clean water, the restoration of sovereign uh, rights to indigenous peoples and recognizing that we're on their land, and getting permission to do everything that we need to do, where, you know, to be trans or queer is not a spectacle or a site of danger, you know, Mm. or subject to violence, because there is no violence. Um, To to be free, you know, and and to be free as, as a kind of striving, to every day to create freedom, not as something that is just kind of given to you, but you could seize in community to make sure that everybody knows each other, you know, that there, there are no strangers in some respects. You can come up to anyone and not be afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and to live a life where we don't drown ourselves in labor and work, but we're reading and thinking and talking and hanging out, you know, where, where the, where the music is just infinite. Um, mm. You know, this is, this is our world, you know, the, that's the world of abolition. And it's the world that, you know, I would love my children to inherit, but, you know, it's not that like they have to wait to inherit it. They have to make it
3: mm-hmm. and
2: make it happen. But to make it happen requires completely thinking differently about what does it mean to be in this world? You know, what does it mean uh, to share and to care as the first principles? as opposed to to receive, to get, to accumulate mm. as, you know, an, an anti-life practice, Yeah. right? So caring and sharing, that's like the first principles, you know? Mm. And that's first principles of the of a kind of agape and beloved community that I think I'm always thinking about, talking about. Mm. I know we asked you to take
0: the the historian hat off for that question. I'm going to ask you real quick to just, just put it on a little bit for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Damon and I talk a lot about the nonlinearity of liberation work, right? So that there have been communities living in these futures in our past. Um, are there spaces, moments, flashes of this world that you just described that you've studied and know exist um, that give you some, if not solace, at least a feeling of like-
2: Encouragement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's That's really hard. Question because because um, when I put my historian hat on, I could think of some and then suddenly screech to a halt and then talk about all the contradictions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, also, the um, future you said didn't sound like there wouldn't be any contradictions. Right. Yes, exactly. So exactly. that's okay too. Um, that just sounds like
1: your everyday, though. You just have a great idea and then it just screeches to a halt because you're thinking of the contradictions. Yeah, just, exactly. You know,
2: it's like I just I, a I think about life. You know. <laughs> like i will give you like an example of of this you know there was a time when i thought grenada after the new jewel movement was a space where they were moving toward a real socialist um community economy and of course as i did deeper research it turned out that that wasn't the case it's actually a lot of internal violence and state repression and silencing um, and, and I learned that, you know, through deeper research. There's also um, Monique Badasi, is this historian and she wrote this amazing book about the Rastafari community in Tanzania. Mm. And when you read that book, you see uh, an attempt, even within a socialist society, to build a different kind of socialism, you know, and it's it's a it's not quite utopic, but it's close You also find, to me, some of the best examples are kind of partial examples of community building. There's an organization that emerged in the 1990s called Sister to Sister, Mm -hmm. uh,
3: Mm -hmm. and
2: they're in Brooklyn. And these are young women of color, some of them immigrant or children of immigrants, um, Black, brown, Asian, who were dealing with this problem of domestic violence in a neighborhood. so what happens? People call the police, and the police would come. And when they did come, they hardly ever would come. When they come, their tendency is to to arrest uh, the perpetrator, who would often be undocumented, and then deport that person, and it would just wreck the family. So they tried to figure out a way to create a world without the police. And they did what they did was they did street theater to bring attention to domestic violence. They did workshops. They trained men uh, in you know and how to sort of deal with conflict. Uh, They had vigilance committees that would go save children and women in situations like that so they wouldn't have to call the police. And they did two things. They pretty much eliminated the police presence and they reduced domestic violence to almost nil. Mm. And from there, created all kinds of possibilities for social reproduction, that is to say, cooperatives, daycare, you know, ways that people can make a living with very, because it's a working class community with very few resources. That is an example of making the road, right? Making this kind of utopian road uh, in struggle around a crisis. And to me, that's much more realistic as a possibility than the kind of science fiction utopias where people kind of go to another planet and then everything is just, just perfect, you know? Right. And, you know, there's other examples from a long, long time ago, but, um, you know, but those are almost too easy because, uh, you know, in, in periods where capitalism itself is not really developed, uh, where you can actually find spaces of isolation, there's all kinds of examples of these kind of utopian type communities. But in this world, those spaces are few and far between.
0: Mm. Dame, you have anything else you want
2: just, to? Just humble gratitude.
0: Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, it, in this conversation that we've been building around abolition over, the, over these weeks, obviously there are many strands that connect between the conversations we've had. Um, is there any piece of this concept, this framing, this promise, this ideal of abolition that you want to make sure is clear and is part of that definition, part of that conversation?
2: Yeah, let me... <laughs> there, there's actually there's actually one thing I was thinking about and this has to do with with the roots of abolition um, what makes this generation of abolitionists different is it's a, it's arising out of a feminist tradition
3: mm.
2: uh, and I think you know Angela Davis and Gina Dent and Beth Ritchie and you know Barbara Ransby and others, they all are recognizing what they call abolition feminism. And abolition feminism, I think, is really driving the best of our movements. Now, not, not all movements are abolitionists, by the way, you know. but the best of our movements. And, it's, and it really builds on that tremendous document, the Insight Critical Resistance document, I think, from 2001, that everyone could get online and it's worth reading. And where it states, a world without police and prisons is a world that, you know, doesn't value or produce police and punishment. But it's a world that's based on, on radical freedom, mutual accountability, and passionate reciprocity. Mm. And that is, that is abolition feminism. It's dedicated, really, again, to eradicating all forms of oppression and exploitation. All forms. Even the ones we haven't found yet, <laughs> um, you know, ending state-sanctioned violence uh, and you know, really replacing not just the police but the military, you know, the, the world's police uh, and prisons, of course, with humane, non-carceral paths for safety and, and justice. And of course, uh, Marilyn K- Kaba is one of the great advocates.
1: It's just true
2: for this. Um, it means protecting the earth and ending precarity. Uh, and it also means if you're going to do all that stuff, that even the people that we have targeted and identified as the culprits in this vicious story of state violence, probably we should think about like, what does the future look like where they're not going to see jail time? You know, we're all excited because we're going to put people in jail and we call ourselves abolitionists. <laughs> so in some respects, that's abolition feminism. And abolition feminism, if there's anything that I subscribe to and trying to learn, it's that. And that if that's the core of our movements, then we're in good shape. If it's going to be what Ruth Wilson Gilmore called the faux abolitionist, <laughs> <laughs> then I'm not part of that. You know, and I think none of us should be. And that is faux abolitionist, meaning really are just trying to get a kind of liberal version. Of the police state uh, who support things like carceral feminism, you know the idea that that you know they're the bad people, we put them in prison. Uh, but we still need the police, we still need the military because we got to be safe. We know that that stuff doesn't make us safe. And one thing we didn't talk about, but it's worth just mentioning in passing, black and brown people still being killed not just by the police, but by a system that has failed us.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, and, you know, there's always that, you know, what about the, you know, all the killings in Chicago and all, well, that's evidence that the police don't work. That they're failing, yes. Right, they're (laughs) totally failing, you know, and the other evidence that the police don't work is what brought us abolition feminism sort of in the first place, and that is that groups like the Combahee River Collective and others organize around the disappearance of Black women who the police didn't. Give a shit about, basically. Mm. That's the story, all the disappearance of, of black and brown women uh, in Boston, in Los Angeles, where Margaret Prescott has waged a campaign to you know really deal with that question in Peoria, in Charlotte. you know this is a story that is not spectacular violence of people shooting each other where you've got um, collateral damage of a, a young girl. That's one kind of violence. But the other violence is a kidnapping and, and killing, dismembering and raping of Black women all over the country, thousands upon thousands. And that is further evidence that police are a utter failure. we have got to come up with a better way to make us safe, uh, protect us and keep us living.
0: Mm.
2: How can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found, Robin? I don't want to be found. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's why we asked the question.
1: <laughs> Keep a Google alert. You'll, you'll, you'll see what's coming up. Uh, you. you do have a, a, a book coming up. Is there anything you want to to say about that? I know you're still in process of it, but just things to look for, or we can cut this out if you don't want nobody to know.
2: Yeah, you don't have to. I mean, it's it's. I'm still in process trying to write it in, um, okay. under strict deadlines. What's your I made a mistake? What's well, from... called um, Black Body Swinging,
3: mm.
2: um, an American Postmortem. which is about a lot of stuff I talked about. It's it's basically, it's a book that uses historical autopsy around nine or 10 recent murders to dig deep into the history of the last 400 years of understanding um, how we got to this point, uh, both in terms of the history of racial capitalism and state-sanctioned violence, but also the history of opposition to that. So each chapter digs into a particular place, region, and then spreads out in, the, in a nonlinear way, tells a history to understand how we got here. Mm, I look forward to it. Yeah, I well, you're, me too. I know you're in the
1: midst of it. So <laughs> I know it's not exciting for you, but the way you describe that is exciting for me. So try to live vicariously through my excitement for a moment if you can.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank well, you. We'll see. Thank yeah. you so much. I really well, thank you. I really appreciate you. it. This is a b- the most fun I've ever had on one of these things, <laughs> you know, wow. which is all the more reason why it's my last. Yeah, yeah. 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 no, it's all, yeah, it's all downhill from here. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, and we'll be back on the line showcasing the folks reshaping the culture of our world for the more equitable and creative.
1: Much love to the people.
0: Peace.